If you ever uh, walked into a uh, coach's office or a, uh, a dentistry or uh, a doctor's uh, place of establishment in the 90s, if you ever walked in one of those places in the 90s, rest assured uh, you were going to see a poster with like one word on the bottom. Remember this? Little space in between and then some epic you know, picture of something, right? So on the bottom would be courage and a picture of a puppy, right? Like just strange stuff, right? Like uh, my dad, my dad had a, a the, and the word was challenge and then it was some like really difficult golf, you know, uh, hole or something, right? Like these have evolved a lot as social media has taken over, okay? We've, we've added all kinds of images and ways to phrase and Heidi every once in a while will show me as she describes uh, something cute that she saw on Facebook, you know, like a, a cute little slogan or a cute little saying. And uh, I, I, though I'm not on Facebook, I found something cute that I'd like to share with you guys, if you don't mind, okay? The evolution of how we put, you know, phrases and words into picture. Uh, this is something cute that I found. Check this out, okay? Uh, this is how to build a lasting relationship. Number one, cut on the dotted line. Number two, rotate 180 degrees, right? And I saw this, I was like, that's kind of cute, you know? And some of you still aren't getting it. Let me help spell it out for you, okay? <laughs> okay, when, when the M turns 180 degrees, because some of you are still carrying the one, it becomes, it becomes a W, okay? And so how to build lasting relationship, it's about we and not me, all right? Everyone, I, I, that kind of tickled me, as my grandma would say. It, it uh, was cute. I've been thinking a lot about relationships, uh, especially uh, coming out of the discipleship conference this past weekend, which was an unbelievable uh, time uh, for those of us who were here. It was incredible. It got me thinking about the kinds of relationships that we have. Uh, Though we could talk about this in many different ways and forums, I want to break down relationships into two different categories. Let's break them down into these. We have inherited relationships... And we have relationships that we pursue. So our inherited relationships uh, begin with our family, right? So, so you don't, uh, as it were, pick your family. Your, your family is uh, inherited to you. You inherit your family, okay? All of a sudden, uh, as you, you know, um, are birthed, okay? Like, you are welcomed into some sort of family situation. Now, oftentimes that situation may change and flux and uh, show all kinds of flexibility, but that's an inherited relationship. Uh, we inherit uh, relationships with our coworkers, uh, some of which you would never choose in you know any facet of your life, right? Uh, some of you sit uh, in a in a cubicle or uh, uh, down the hallway from from folks who would never ever be in relationship with you. You know that they're acquaintances, folks that you don't hang with, but you're you've inherited them, right? How many of you guys sit next in your office area next to a person that you would never, ever, ever hang out with outside of work? How many of you guys inherited relationships like that? All right, fair enough. So a few, a few honest folks. And it's awkward, right, because some of your coworkers are here, so like trying to find you and see if you're admitting that about you. Um, inherited relationships, there's all kinds of these things. Maybe our neighbors, some of our our dorm room friends, right? Like, so when I, when I got put on, in Walton Third on my freshman year, I inherited like 40 new relationships. Uh, I didn't choose them. They were, they were there, okay? Then there are those kinds of relationships that we pursue. 
Uh, I know for some of you females, uh, it, it's very difficult at times to, uh, like everyone talks about, and certainly we see some uh, semblance of this in Scripture, that you're to wait on the man to pursue you. Uh, and so some of you have put the cart before the horse, and, and you long to become the pursuer, right? Uh, we, we pursue uh, um, really good friends that we desire to be around. We uh, pursue relationships that we think will uh, not just make us better, but will fuel us and encourage us. Uh, those are the ones that, that feel like, uh, for lack of a better term, that we can control. Relationships are all around us all the time, inherited and pursued. Uh, next slide. This becomes the reality then. What kind of relationships am I called to pursue? So if relationships are all around me all the time, what kinds of relationships, biblically, am I literally called from the mouth of God to go after? Okay. Well, Jesus um, makes very clear for us, I believe, in all of the Gospels, uh, a lot of those uh, relationships. So I want to begin by showing you one in Mark 3, though there's certainly many more. Check this out. Unbelievable text. And he went up on the mountain to Jesus... And called to him those whom he desired. This is the calling of the first apostles as recorded by Mark. And they came to him. Look at this. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Unbelievable part of the, of the scripture here. Look at this. So that they might be what? That they might be with him. Uh, this past weekend if you were at the discipleship conference. This is the definition of biblical discipleship. Jesus pursues, calls these relationships to what? To come with him. In all facets of life, in all areas of life, he goes after them, the ones that he desired, he pursues them, and he says, come with me. And he, he wants them to come with him so that he might send them out to preach and ultimately have authority to cast out demons. You're like, I don't know how that relates to me. Just hang on a bit, okay? These kinds of relationships, the, the kinds that would be discipling relationships, the kind that, that Jesus would pursue for the, uh, the glory of his Father, I feel like he's made very, very clear to us. Pursue these kinds of relationships. And, and that's ultimately what's happened in Corinth. Paul has desired to pursue a very particular certain kind of relationship. Now, he does so for the crowd. So he comes into Corinth and he's planting a church. And so in so many ways, he's discipling or more generally we could say shepherding an entire city of believers. But more specifically, he, he desires to have this very intimate connection with Corinth. We, we've seen that in his language. He's passionate about these people. And tonight we are going to unearth uh, some of the depths of the core of the heart of Paul for this church in Corinth. In fact, tonight, I would say, is one of the turning point passages uh, in this whole long letter that we're going to be studying. So open your Bibles, my friends, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to study all the way from verses uh, 14 to 21. We'll end uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 4 tonight with just some incredible text. Seriously, incredible text. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 14. When you guys are there, say I'm there. Father, I pray tonight that you will mold us, shape us, encounter us in a real way, and show us tonight, God, the kinds of relationships that we are called to pursue. 
Make it clear to us, O God. In your great and holy name, amen. Check this out in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. But he says to admonish you as my beloved children. Now remember the section we're coming out of? What was Paul doing last week? What was he doing? He was being what? Come on. Sarcastic. Remember this? He's challenging their pride and he was doing so with sarcasm. And so he comes out of that sarcastic toned text and he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, which like, I, we have to kind of call into question, right? Because generally when someone is um, challenging us and using sarcasm, rarely do I take that as something positive. If, if they're like coming to me and, and they're you know, challenging a method of ministry or the way I communicate or how I live my life and they use like a tone of sarcasm, kind of that, that slight like side mouth smirk, you know, a little bit of a slanty eye, like I rarely say this person has my best interest in mind. But apparently Paul can shift gears quickly. Uh, apparently he can be sarcastic and then say all of a sudden, I didn't write this that you would be ashamed, but rather to admonish you. Which calls into question, next slide, these two things. Ashamed versus admonished. What are the differences? Uh, they both have the, the word ad at the beginning, okay? So we can start there for the, the captain obvious is in the room. But, but what about after? How are these words different? I want to propose to you that uh, you and I, the church in general... We are unbelievable at communicating things with the intent to shame. Uh, at times we have perfected it. Okay, you do this with your spouses, right? You do this with your children. Because ultimately, deep down in our core, in our insecurity, we believe that if we can shame people enough, humiliate them enough, then we will get a desired reaction. And again, there's all kinds of examples of this. I would like to say that every time that I challenge my wife, I do so in a winsome, loving way as we sing Kubaya with candles lit. The reality is, like sometimes I intentionally, in the hard-heartedness of my heart, come at her with an intent to shame her. Because deep down in my insecurity, I believe that if I can shame her enough, it will humiliate her enough and then if she's humiliated enough, then she will react in the way that I want. Now, maybe this is just how I uh, proceed at times, but, but some of you, I, I think, can relate to this. So what's the difference between admonishing and uh, uh, being, uh, 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 forcing a, sh a shamedness on others, okay? So first, uh, next slide. First from this text, this is straight from the Scripture. It will help us understand this. 2 Thessalonians 3. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Okay, so like I, I was you know, searching out the scripture, this is one of many where being ashamed is not uh, a tremendous thing. Okay? Uh, like you never say like I'm really ashamed of that and that uh, being communicating about something that you're really, really proud of. right? Like it's in general a negative-toned situation. Admonishing, though, is very different. Next slide. Here's a beautiful passage from Colossians 3. We just studied this not too long ago. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching 
and admonishing one another, the, the body, the church, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Beautiful text, right? Like it makes me want to sing. So here's what Paul's saying. I haven't um, been sarcastic and I haven't called you out and I'm not challenging you to force you down six feet under in the ground and make you ashamed. Rather, I'm desiring to admonish you. Let's say it this way. Next slide, check this out. Communication that has intent of causing shame will most likely create guilt-driven response. So can I ask you now, how much of our response as brothers and sisters in Christ is guilt-driven? So if we shame one another enough, if we say words that cut enough, then maybe, just maybe, all of a sudden we'll see action, but the motive behind that action is guilt. So if we say, we need to be on mission in the city of St. Charles enough, you punk communists, right? Like, if we phrase things enough, if we use sappy stories enough to say, why in the world were you not there? Every, like, all these other people were there, what's your problem? Oh, you were sitting at home, Right? Oh, we, could, we could say that of the people who stayed home tonight in fear of the 30 mile per hour winds, right? Like, oh, what's your problem as you're listening to the recording, right? Like, you couldn't brave the elements, right? Like the rest of us, we, we do a phenomenal job of shaming. And then what happens is the response, it seems like we, we get what we want. They react, oh, oh yeah, you're right, you know, we, we, should have, we should have been more missional or we should have attended or we should have participated, But in the heart of the responder, it's a response of guilt. Can I ask you guys this? And this is a scary question to ask. How much of our response is out of guilt? Uh, We would say here that um, worship is response to God's initiation. But that gets very, very clouded. We start responding not to God's initiation, but to how our other brothers and sisters in Christ are shaming us to response. You guys see? It looks like obedience. It looks like worship. It looks like genuine servitude. Because it's, it, it, it seems like what we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Or the word I hate, should be doing. But instead, we're responding and our, our heart is guilt. Now, admonishing is a whole different kind of a sharing and challenging and loving. The, the Greek word implies To warn gently. So admonishing apparently from Colossians 3 is something to be embodied in the church. Admonishing apparently from Paul's tone in verse 14 is something that we should embrace as brothers and sisters in Christ. Longing for people to gently warn us. Not desiring guilt but in their heart of hearts coming to us, speaking the truth in love because they long to see our sanctification. We want to see our brothers and sisters grow in Christ. We we want to see their maturation happen. And so because of that, we have the the Holy Spirit-led conversation that we've been scared of for months to look our brother in the eye and say, look, I come and I approach you in humility. I see this in your life and I want to bring this to you because if if I don't I will be I'll be disobedient and I I want I want to love you through this and I long to see your growth the reality is someone with a pure motive and pure heart did that at one point in our life and we rejected them 
They came in humility. They came with grace. They came even confessing their own sin. Like, look, I'm a punk too. Like, I failed many times, but, but if I don't share this with you, you're going to miss the opportunity to grow. And yet, we received it in judgment, hatred, and disgrace. We thought they were shaming us because of all of our experience of being ashamed in the past. What if that changed? Wouldn't you agree with me that if guilt could just leave the confines of the church, if we really believe that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, if we really embrace that, don't you think that all of a sudden the beauty that we would experience in our relationships would be incredible? Now, from the pastoral side, I want nothing to do with guilt in this body. Let me say it this way. If you ever feel guilted into doing something here, will you share that, please? So that we can together walk through that. Whether it's from a lot family leader. Okay? Whether it's from a, a discipler. Whether it's from another ministry leader. If, if it's ever guilt ridden in your heart. Share that so then we can walk through it. Now what's going to happen in walking through it. Is you may realize your own sin in hearing it. Right? Come on. You may realize that you're hearing it through the lens of your past and not through the lens of love in the present. But what's happened, right, is we feel guilted and then we just get pushed farther and farther and farther down because we don't want to have the admonishing, hard conversation. We'd rather cower. And so what Paul is doing in love, and you guys have seen this in Corinth, like he's coming in hot, right? But he desires their growth. Uh, he, he doesn't want to see their immaturity cause a sin and continue dissension in the church. And so he says, I come with a different kind of heart. Okay, now, now what does this look like lastly? Right, so if we're, if we're challenging someone and, and like the way the shame language works, you know, two brothers are sitting down for coffee because that's what, where all good Christian conversation happens apparently, Right? And generally at Starbucks, I've never even been to a Starbucks, but I know that that's where it happens. Um, hey, uh, hey, brother, uh, how, man, how, how's, how's discipleship going, right? Oh, discipleship, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really not that interested in that, you know, it's kind of, I know Matt, the whole Matthew 28 thing, right, but I'm just not, and then the other brother begins to say things like, yeah, um, yeah you know what, have you read, like, have you read your Bible recently? Like, have you read Matthew 28? Dude, I'll tell you right now, if you don't start doing that, do you understand what's going to start happening here? Like, do you understand, like, all, the, and they start heaping it on and on and on. And in the end, it seems like we get to the, to the right response. The brother on the receiving end is like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. Like, I really should disciple. But their heart is in response to a brother in Christ and not, and not a good God who's commanded in freedom, discipleship. Do you guys see? So what if we just embraced as a body, said, God, kill any guilt-ridden stuff at all in our body. Help us be healthy admonishers, but not folks who shame people into worship and obedience. Are we together? Okay. Okay, we need to work together on this front. So he goes on. Look, I haven't written these things to do this, but he says in verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ beautiful language, you do not have many 
fathers. For I became, he says, your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now who is your father in the faith or mother in the faith? Who is it for you? Uh, maybe for you it's, it's uh, someone who helped uh, communicate the gospel, share with you for the first time uh, about the truths of Jesus, and then they welcomed you in their life. And still to this day, you're like, man, that's my padre in the faith of the bilingual. Like that, that person uh, didn't just invest in me, they, they shared with me, they, they brought me into every facet of their life. Uh, for, you, for you ladies, like, is there a mother figure in your life that has taken you under their wing? Uh, we could even say discipled you and nurtured you and taught you. What Paul says of the entire church is you have many guides. And the Greek word for guide implies in the ancient times a slave who would take boys in particular and they would guide them to school and oftentimes, uh, in, in conjunction with the master, they would be in charge of taking them to school and then bringing them home from school and kind of being in charge of the behavior. So what Paul says is you have many guides, many mouthpieces, but you don't have many fathers. This passage, more than any other passage in Corinthians thus far, I think uh, we can relate to. In this body, there is a desperate need of fathers. And I'm not talking about the, the kinds of dads that are a part of rearing children and um, those sorts of things. I'm talking about the kind of men and the kind of women who are engaged in pursuing relationship for the glory of God while investing in those younger in the faith. I mean, right now, just by a show of hands, if we said, all right, like, who is in desperate need of a father or mother in the faith? And we just, like, raised our hand. My guess is, because of the conversations that I have, is the percentage of those people would be way more than those who would raise their hand and say, like, listen, I long to be one of the fathers of some younger men in the faith. I long to be one of the mothers of some younger women in the faith. We could say it this way. The, the disciples that are in need of a discipler are way more than those who are ready to disciple. Well, this exchange must transition. Because we in this body long to see people come to the Lord Jesus in saving faith and then grow in their faith while being poured into and discipled by strong fathers and mothers in Christ. And that's Paul's heart for the whole church in Corinth and we'll see in a relationship in particular. What happens is if that transition doesn't happen, if the percentages don't change, then a new believer walks out of the baptismal and they're waiting and waiting and waiting to be discipled and poured into. When some, some of you who have been blessed by discipling relationships, you know how fruitful and godly and um, Lord understanding it is. And so if these new believers are waiting around, my friends, their young faith, which is ready to explode, is waiting on us to mature. Are you guys getting what I'm saying? 
Paul says you have countless guides. You have many people that can, you know, walk you from school to back, but what you don't have is many fathers. And that's my heart for you, Corinth. I'm a father. What do good fathers do? In a moment of interaction, what do good fathers do? We talk all the time about bad fathers. Let's talk about good fathers. What do good fathers do? Come on. What do good fathers do? What do you got? Come on. What's that? They listen. They listen. Okay, for sure. Encourage. Encourage, yeah. They discipline. Okay, some of you are like, no, good, good fathers don't do that. <laughs> okay, no, they do. They do. You'll see uh, the, the, the rod is in this passage in verse 21. What else, okay? What else? What do good fathers do? Yeah, they, come on, they protect. They protect. Like, do you understand that? There is something in every good mother and father that they've already thought through. If some intruder comes in their home, what's going to happen? Okay, one in the morning, all of a sudden you hear some wrestling in the kitchen. Every good mom and dad has already thought through the plan. Right, so they know where their weapon of choice is. For me, it's scissors on my nightstand, right? For others, it's, it's another kind of weapon. Because I'm all about ninja warfare, you know, right? <laughs> Hand-to-hand combat, right? But it's that natural protective piece that comes out, good Fathers protect, and that is the heart of Paul. Good fathers are interested in the growth of their children, right? Come on. They want to see growth. Uh, They're not content with where their children are at. That's the difference between a guide and a father. A guide walks them to school and walks them back. A guide is interested in the day to day, but a father sees the bigger picture. A mother sees sees the bigger picture. And so I'm, I'm looking out at a bunch of dear friends, many of which long ago, long ago, empowered by the Spirit, were ready to be a disciple maker, to pour in, to be fathers and mothers in the faith, but you still find yourselves hesitant. And I want to make sure you understand, it's affecting the body of Christ. It was affecting Corinth. They were a hot mess because they had many gods and not many fathers. Now, this gets even more intense, unbelievable passage in verse 16. Check this out. I urge you then, hello, be what? Come on. Be imitators of me. Now, every time I teach this passage, talk about this passage with believers, they're like, I don't know how anyone can see this as as not prideful. Like, how in the world does Paul think that this is a humble way of communicating? What most often happens is you and I believe that what he's really talking about is impersonation. Impersonate me. So can I show you the difference? We can really learn a lot from Jimmy Fallon. Okay, here's impersonation. Here's impersonation. This is, a, this is impersonation, right? I know it's hard to tell what, what's the real T-Swift, Okay. T-Swift on the right, that's Jimmy Fallon, that's right. On the left, Im- impersonation. Next slide, how about this one, okay. There he is, right. Russell, what's his name, Russell uh, Brand? Yeah, Russell Brand, Jimmy, what a, what a sweet, like, beginnings of a stash there you got. And his most recent, here's Fallon, right, you guys have all seen this, uh, the, the, the Trump version of this. Um, <laughs> we think and believe 
that to imitate means to impersonate. That belief has created a ton of tension in the church. Take that down before someone thinks I'm making a political statement. Next slide, okay? (laughs) Here's what impersonate means. Impersonate means to pretend to be another person as entertainment or in order to deceive someone. Now, I'm serious about this. If I listen to one more sermon of a pastor who sounds like Matt Chandler, like I'm just going to go crazy. I'm going to go crazy. There's a reason why I don't listen to many sermons of other guys because I don't want to fall into this trap. But seriously, like I was just listening to another brother over the, like over the weekend, right? And I'm like listening to him. I'm like, hold on a second. Like that sounds, that's Matt Chandler. And so I look at the name, but it's not Matt Chandler, right? So like just by being around or listening, you start not imitating but impersonating. Of thinking that somehow you can pretend to be them. Is discipleship in the church trying to pretend to be someone else? Or is it something much deeper? Uh, the difference, next slide, that's impersonate. Here's what uh, imitate means, to take or follow as a model. Uh, impersonate is pretend. Imitate says, okay, this is, this is like the reality and the truth and the understanding. And so I, I, I long to imitate this person their walk of Christ, their understanding of Jesus, that, that actually is, is a beautiful thing. It's also created the most intimidating piece for you and I because we're like, well, I'm, I'm really not Im- imitatable, if that's a word. If right now you were the, the, the pen of 1 Corinthians, could you write, be imitators of me? Would you write that? Or would it have all kinds of exit clauses, right? Um, you know, like, like most of the time, except mornings, because I'm not a morning person. Actually, like, so like 10 a.m. to like until my morning, my afternoon, like grog hits. So from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., be imitators of me. Except on the third Wednesday, right? Because it's Taco Tuesday on Wednesday, and I'm kind of a glutton on that day, right? Like, Could you, in boldness, any confidence, with the understanding of what God is doing in you, say, be imitators of me? This is the greatest hindrance in disciple making. Because ultimately what you're doing in disciple making is you're saying, come with me as together we follow Christ implication is I'm going to be the teacher you're going to be the pupil and you're going to be learning from my life so the greatest hesitation in people answering the call to what Paul's showing and describing is I am not imitatable okay is Paul saying that he's perfect no but for whatever reason you think that being imitatable means perfection One of the greatest things a disciple can learn from a discipler is repentance. It's actually beautiful when a discipler makes themselves known, male or female, to the disciple. And then the disciple learns what humble, 
Christ-focused repentance looks like. I'm a broken man. I'm in desperate need of God's grace. And here's how I erred yet again. This is what our children need to see. Like, Like the greatest equalizer in this understanding is watching your kids. Well, let's just pull back. Look at you. Okay. Have you ever woken up and you were like, oh my goodness, my dad said that like 20 years ago. Oh my goodness, I have the exact same hairline as my father, right? Like, I can't, I can't believe it. Like, here I am, I'm using Windex on everything, just like my mom, right? I do, okay? If there's anything that is a need in our house, Windex is the answer, right? Like, Avery's hungry, Windex, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's a stain on my shirt, Windex, it doesn't matter. Where does that come from? My mom. Have you ever had that moment? So imagine, imagine, imagine if the boldness that was increased in our maturation in Christ could literally look at disciples and say, listen, there's a lot of gods, there's not many fathers. I long to be and will be a mother or father in the faith for you. Come follow me, come with me as together we follow Christ. What we're going to do is we're going to point to Jesus. We're not going to point to me. We're going to learn together. We're going to point to Christ. You're going to see me fail. We're going to point to Christ. Be imitator of me. And then he gives us, does Paul, the greatest example of how this flushes out. Next slide. Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Therefore, be imitators of who? Of God. Be imitators of God. So it's not just man, but actually and ultimately it's God because what I'm doing is I'm following God. He, he then adds this to continue this teaching through the New Testament of uh, imitation. Uh, uh, next slide if you can. Okay. In Hebrews chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. But look, imitators of those who, uh, who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we're imitators of God. We're imitators of followers of Christ as they follow God. And this is the fruit. Next slide. We see the fruit then ultimately. And you, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Like, you imitated the Lord, you were imitating us, and in so doing, you became a powerful example just like Timothy. Check this out in verse 17. This is why I sent you, Timothy. Sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Now, here's what he's saying I discipled Timothy, I called Timothy, I sent Timothy to you, and it's like you got me. So I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come to you, Corinth. But I went ahead and sent Timothy, who I called to be my disciple in Acts chapter 16, and I sent him to you as representative of me, and it's just like getting me. That is the fruit of discipleship. I send my disciple out, and it's, it's like you're getting, you're getting me. 
Now, poor discipleship says, don't do as I do, but do as I say. Instead, what Paul has embodied in this young disciple, Timothy, are the truths of the scripture. So let's walk through four uh, important phrases of verse 17. Look at this. This is why I sent you, Timothy. A huge piece of discipleship is sending. Not just gathering, not just saying, come with me. But it's also sending out, which is very difficult for a father. Amen? How many guys got like freshmen in college? Okay? And they're like, hey, mom and dad, I really feel like I'm supposed to go to college in Maine. And you're like, heck no, God did not say that. You know? Didn't you know Lindenwood and Moab and, you know, like St. Charles community, like they're in the sphere of trust, right? Like they're, they're right here. We want to hoard. We want to just gather into ourselves and if we can just create this, uh, this sort of semblance of a bubble, then all will be good. But what, is, what does Jesus do? Jesus is consistently sending and Paul here, he empowers so that he can send. These are the kind of relationships we're called to pursue. Then he calls them, look at this, a beloved and faithful child in the Lord. It wasn't just Corinth that Paul was a father to. It was his disciple Timothy. I was a father. He was a child. I invited him into my life. And I fathered him in the faith. I protected him. I nurtured him. I taught him. I was patient with him. I gave him grace. I challenged him. He was my child in the faith. A great definition in this passage. Look at this. To remind you, he tells Corinth, of what? Of my what? My ways. Which I absolutely love because some of you have grown to believe that discipleship is the module only. So we're going to get together and I'm going to teach my disciple biblical covenant and then I'm going to see him again in two weeks at Starbucks. But, but what does Paul say that Timothy is representing? Paul's what? Come on. Paul's ways, his life. How do you show someone your life if they're not around your life outside of a coffee, a, a coffee shop? We have so limited what being a father and mother in the faith is to confining it to meetings. One of the things I love, love, love about this body are how many uh, people live with other people in this, in this body. That sounds weird when you say it at first, but, but bear with me for a second, okay? There are so many college students, young professionals, young singles that are living with other people in, the, in this room. Because they, they found out a need, hey, like, brother or sister, like, they, you know, they're going to, they need to save up some money for a while, they need to do X, Y, Z. Hey, look, we got an extra room in the basement, kind of, it really wasn't even meant to be a room, but come on, come on up in here. Like, what a beautiful opportunity to live life together. And then when it comes to discipleship, we think that it's just teaching. It's not just teaching, and it's not just life, it's both. Which is why Paul doesn't just say my ways in Christ. He says what? As I, come on, what? Teach. So the beautiful thing about being a father or mother in Christ, pursuing right relationship, is you say, come with me. You're going to see my life, but also I'm going to teach. Just like I do my kids. 
just like many of you do with your kids. We teach, we admonish, we encourage, we take teachable moments and transform them. We live life together so then we can walk alongside of them as they learn and grow and mature. And that's what Paul says. I sent you Timothy, and it was just like getting me. He's not, he's not like impersonating me, so he's going to have a different tone of voice. He's not going to have all my man, mannerisms, right? And he may even be a little bit taller than me, but he is, he is going to imitate me, and ultimately the Lord, Paul says. So look at this in verse 18 as he transitions here to the end. He says, Some are arrogant in Corinth, as though I were not coming to you. So some have talked down, some have talked bad, some have, some have said, listen, Paul, you're not going to come. But look what he says, I will come to you soon, if the Lord what? The Lord wills. Uh, I generally teach that that is a tremendous cop-out. And I've had to swallow some of my words in this particular teaching, right? So a lot of times uh, people use the, the God wills card as a means of providing all kinds of uh, escape routes, right? Oh, like all disciple if God wills, you know? Yeah, all, uh, all serve if God wills. I'll give of myself. If, so we use it in the wrong context. But Paul really doesn't know. He's like, look, I don't know where the Lord's going to take me next, so I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, look at this, unbelievable, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. It's been a long time since my heart has been so stirred about a particular phrase. What in the world does he mean? Is he saying, I'm going to walk into Corinth, we're going to line everyone up, they're going to flex their biceps and abs, and then we're going to gauge spiritual power based upon physical appearance. Is that what he's saying? Let's make some observations from the scripture about power. Next slide. For Christ did not send me to baptize, we saw this in 1 Corinthians, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its what? Okay, so let's make one uh, first observation. The cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is, an, is an issue of power. Can we agree with that? So if the cross can be emptied of its power or at least seemingly emptied of its power, then that means the cross has power, right? Well together. He goes on to say in uh, the same passage, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, this same word is what? Come on. The power of God. The power of God, he says. Moving on, five mentions in 1 Corinthians, he does. Next slide. But we preach, he said a little bit later in verse 23, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The problem is, these passages have become rhetoric. They've become words and language that we hide behind and don't stand in the truth of. In his last mentions here thus far, again I said five so far in 1 Corinthians, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in chapter 2. 
And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of what? I came to you in weakness, and my life demonstrated power. It wasn't my own, it was from the Lord, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What's happened in Corinth is what I fear has happened here is we've stopped believing this. Next slide. I fear we've stopped believing it. I can say it for sure about Corinth. The kingdom of God has become a matter of talk. It's become a matter of which leader they're following. It's become a matter of personal pride. Maybe there was a time, maybe initially, when they believed it was power. When they believed it was more than rhetoric. When they believed it was more than niceties. But now in Corinth, the truth of the gospel has been lessened to slogans and phrases and pleasantries. I fear that we find ourselves there too. Do you believe this? Maybe you did one time. Maybe there was a time and a moment where you believed prayer had power. Maybe there was a time and a season where you truly believed that the Spirit had power. Uh, maybe there was a moment, not just in some experiential, but in being confronted with the character of God that you believed more than ever that you couldn't even begin to contain the power of God. But now for, for so many of us, the world sees phrases and slogans and they hear talk and as it's said by every good coach, talk is cheap. I was wondering this myself. Have I in any way stopped believing it? That the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And then I started processing, if I have stopped believing it, or at least if I'm struggling to believe it, what would change my perspective? What would all of a sudden remind me, grab me, shift my thinking, change my heart to believe this verse again? What, what would have to happen to make that happen? In my sin, it would be uh, some crazy experience. Right? Like in my sin, it would be, oh, I'll believe that's true. If right now, like, Look, the doors open wide, and here comes Jesus. And like we couldn't even look, right? Like, I mean, he was like crown, and I mean, 
the whole nine, like robe, and he was glorious and white. There was even some angels flopping around up in here, right? Like, in my sin, I would say, God, if you did that, I mean, if you could just make that happen, Lord, trust me, I will believe, I'll, I'll shut my mouth, I'll be silent and know that you're God. In my sin, I'm after lustfully, at times, an experience. But isn't it tricky? Because oftentimes that experience, as the experience fades, then aren't you back to like struggling to, I'll just speak for myself, aren't you back to struggling to, to believe this again? Are these prayers doing anything? Is the spirit in me really empowering me? Again, we say empower a lot, but we don't understand the power piece. But the kingdom of God is not a matter or an issue of talk. It is an issue of power. So what would have to happen? It's what I've been praying for for days. Is that we tonight would be confronted with the power of God. Confronted. And the amazing thing about God is that will mean something different for each of us. For some of you tonight, being confronted with the power of God will literally soften your heart for the first time to call on His name as God and Savior. It's never happened in your life. But for some of you tonight, that will be the confrontation. It will be waking you up from your slumber and in an unbelievably powerful moment and reality speaking your name and saying listen now you're mine I'm your God and you're my kid for some of you that will be what it looks like for many others it will be remembering celebrating getting re-engulfed again in the power of your salvation. Mark, stop talking about salvation. That's all you people talk about up in here. You just keep going back to the gospel, Mark. We just keep coming back to what God has done. But therein lies the power to take you and I from our complete depravity, give us life, empower us through His Spirit, so that then we can show the world where power comes from. Our lives becoming demonstration of the power of God. Because we could not get rid of that addiction on our own. We couldn't heal our marriage on our own. Trust me, we tried. I could never communicate the gospel on my own. I couldn't build that relationship. I couldn't break that barrier of of a neighborhood engagement. And my friends, I could never disciple someone on my own. Our lives are every single moment of every single day revealing whether this is true or not. There's this crazy passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A letter later, it's not going to be on the screen. Just listen to this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power 
belongs to God and not to us. You and I are given salvation straight from the power of God to show the power of God to the world. That's why this text goes on. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That the world would see the power of God in our life. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, Paul says. Is the world seeing a kingdom of power, or are they just hearing talk? Are they seeing people at the end of themselves, relying solely on the power of God to do anything in their life? Or is the world seeing a whole community of people mustering it up in shame and guilt to disciple, love others, and live as an ambassador for Christ? What is the world seeing? The good thing about having fathers in the faith is we have one really good one in particular who protects us who shepherds us, who nurtures us, who guides us. And I believe tonight, in answer to our prayer, will confront us with his power. Stand up with me, would you? So Paul says as he closes chapter 4, he says, what do you wish then? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What do you want? If it needs to be a rod, that's how I'll come because I want your growth, he's saying. But I long that it could come in this gentle spirit with love. What is it tonight for you? What is it tonight for me? What if we pray together right now for God to confront us with his power? What if you believed again that it was true? Wouldn't it change everything? That he was powerful enough to heal your marriage. That he was powerful enough to use you as a discipler. That he was powerful enough to purge the lies that you hear so consistently. That he was powerful enough in you to conquer the addiction. That he, yes, was powerful enough to take you across the precipice of all the things that you want in and of yourself so that you could just be freed in living under this insane power that only comes from Him. There is no power like it. There's no other source from it. It is from Him alone for His glory alone. Let's pray together right now that God will confront us with it. Every single one of us with the real, true power of God. So Father, we're asking right now not 
not for some uh, experience. We're asking God that you'll stir our hearts to believe again that we cannot hide behind language, phrases, or slogans. So God, help us believe again tonight that your kingdom is built on your power. Help us believe again that our lives are the display for this world of that power. I pray, God, that not a single one of us would shrink back in cowardice or shame tonight or be guilted into believing something. God, free us tonight through your spirit to trust that your power is enough. So as individuals and as the corporate church tonight, confront us with your power. Do it now, O God.